Let's take our Bibles together. We're in, uh, we're in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I invite you to turn there in your Bible. Uh, verses 8 through 11 is what we're looking at this morning as we uh, continue in our series through the book of Revelation. And uh, we're in the section of these individual letters to seven uh, different churches. Last week, Ephesus. This week, Smyrna. Very creative title for my sermon this morning. Smyrna. I thought long and hard about that. Let's uh, read the Bible together and uh, get to unpacking it. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not by, be hurt by the second death. And this is the word of God. We thank him for it. I invite you to pray with me as we prepare. I need it. I think you do too. God, we uh, come before you and we ask for uh, your help by your spirit. We want to hear from you. We're asking you to bring that voice somehow miraculously through the voice of a mere man where I can do nothing, Father, as the proclaimer. Uh, you by your spirit can do all things and your word is what is living and active. So we pray that that truth will be planted in our minds and our hearts and, and accomplish in us the work you, that you desire to do. Father, that um, we as your people would have increased faith and trust and that Christ, through this, himself would be glorified. And we ask all of this in his name. Amen. A, um, a radiologist and a cardiologist, they are discussing a difficult medical case. What do you have? It's a riddle. A paradox. You can think about that. Okay, some of you got it. I know, it's kind of lame. It's a dad joke. I, I get it. I'm, listen, I'm almost 60. I'm entitled to a few of those. Come on. Anyway, paradox, uh, not that, but paradox is really the word that came to mind as I was thinking about this, this Bible text this last week. So according to an internet dictionary, don't know which one, uh, a paradox is a statement or proposition that despite sound or apparently sound reasoning from acceptable premises, leads to a conclusion that seems senseless, logically unacceptable, or self-contradictory. That's a paradox. Now, paradoxes make for, for interesting plot twists and stories. They make for clever poetry and even phrases in songs, like Nick Lowe sang. If you remember the early 80s, you've got to be cruel to be kind. Of course, that's in the right measure. Now, you might see something as paradoxical 
because some essential piece of information is hidden from you. So we think by all appearances, that by all appearances fails to see beyond the, the temporal to appreciate, to fully appreciate what is supernatural. And the Bible, we find, often surprises us in this way. Now, what we read together is, is kind of structured as a letter. Um, it's one among seven in chapters two and three. We began last week with Ephesus, and this one is addressed to the church in Smyrna. A little background in Smyrna. Uh, it's a city in, uh, in back in the day, a city in the Roman, Roman province uh, called Asia Minor. Uh, that's some, some historical records refer to that as Anatolia, that region. Uh, if you want to look at it up on a map, it's modern-day Izmir. It's in Turkey. It's located, uh, we dealt with Ephesus last week, so it's located about 50 miles north of Ephesus on the Gulf of Izmir in, just off of the Aegean Sea. So that gives you a sense of the geography of it. In the form uh, of that city in which John was writing uh, about uh, in the first century, uh, its form at that point, it had been founded. I mean, it was a very ancient city, but it had been founded in its form by Alexander the Great. So it gives you some sense of, its, uh, of the timeline. It had become a very prosperous city, being a, a commercial port, uh, and it really competed with Ephesus to have that sense of prominence in that, in that province of, of Asia Minor. That's at least it, until it was destroyed by, by an earthquake in about 178. So there's a little, little background, a little history of that. Uh, just notable, uh, Christian martyr, Polycarp, he was the bishop, pastor, he was a pastor there. And, and Polycarp himself, if you know, if you've read Fox Book of Martyrs or anything like that, or any history about him, he was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was uh, killed, martyred, in the year 153. So as with, uh, as with Ephesus, I, I take that this letter addressed real-life circumstances that were about to befall the Christians in that city. Now, some take these letters as predictive of what's going to happen to the church today. I, I don't so much see it that way. Um, I think it's predictive, uh, and we'll, we'll see that in a moment perhaps, but, but whatever your position on that, there's certainly application that comes out of this for churches in, in every city and in every time, in every place, until Jesus returns. So this morning, what I want to do is use these apparent paradoxes as really my outline for this message. Um, and so I'll, I'll use them as a, a framework for our exposition. I'll tell you what they are up front, okay? And you can see these, they, they show up in the text. Uh, I've kind of condensed some of the statements. So the first one, poor yet rich. Jews yet doing Satan's bidding. Marked for death but will live. And then there's an overarching truth, which is kind of a paradoxical statement in itself. Jesus is first and last, was dead but lives. So with that, let's, as the letter exhorts us, let's listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The first paradox I see, poor yet rich, poor yet rich. And I think you probably agree, but uh, to some degree in this nation, poverty is a relative measure. The, the, the family income level that falls into the category of poverty in this nation would be probably considered great wealth in some parts of the world. But that said, if, if what you earn 
leaves you unable to afford basic housing and sustenance, it really doesn't matter what that income level is to someone living in the Amazon jungle or sub-Saharan Africa. Poverty is a hardship. It comes upon through sometimes no fault of your own. It comes upon you as a result of poor decisions, financial collapse. But when you're in poverty, you're always wondering where your next meal will come from. You're, you're worried that you won't have a roof over your head and you're not sure that you'll even have the clothing to protect yourself from the elements. And in this nation, Poverty means that even basic health care becomes a very low priority. Now, as we look at our Bible text, Smyrna was a, a very wealthy city, but there was a, a huge divide between the rich and the poor. And historians say that uh, the Christians there were mostly among the poor. It is also possible, though, that an aspect of the tribulation that they were experiencing, that, that poverty, was financial persecution, having their own property stolen or destroy, destroyed by their enemies. But in this letter to Smyrna, Jesus said, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know it. I want you to notice, though, that there's no promise from the Lord to allevi alleviate that poverty in the short term. And this is just a, a reality Poverty exists for some people in every time. And maybe you recall, if you've read through the Gospels, Jesus' answer to those who objected when a woman poured very expensive ointment on him and poured it on his feet and wiped it with her hair. They complained, you could have sold that and, and helped the poor. Jesus said, and he quoted from Deuteronomy 15:11, saying, you will always have the poor with you. That is to say, in this mortal life, there will always be poor people, but, and he was speaking again in the mortal life, you will not always have me. Setting a sense of a priority. What matters here? But for those who belong to Jesus, physical poverty and that perhaps having contributed to physical suffering what that does not do, it does not negate the true and eternal riches in Christ. Hear what he says. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You are rich. I quote this often, but it's a reminder for us. If you have uh, less of the world's goods, uh, we're in a pretty prosperous place. But if everything should be taken away from us, this is what we should remember. It's a confidence that every true disciple of Jesus has that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. To be chosen in Christ, to, to be a child of God, is to have every spiritual blessing. It's that blessing of forgiveness. It is the, the blessing of Christ's imputed righteousness, the blessing of, of being vindicated with Christ before his enemies at the judgment. That's what we look forward to. It's the blessing of the certainty of eternal fellowship with him. And these, brothers and sisters, are stored up in the heavenly places for all who are in Christ.
So whether you are rich or poor in this life or not, that truth should impact how you live. And we can put excessive focus on having stuff and having the retirement account and, and acquiring this or that thing. Brothers and sisters, I know we have much living here. But when Jesus says to those in Smyrna, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Brothers and sisters, we're not rich because of our stuff. Hopefully you would see yourself as rich because you are in Christ. And even if everything was taken away from you, that you would see that you were eternally wealthy in Christ himself. So what do we do? I mean, you have stuff. We have stuff. What do we do? If you belong to Christ, knowing that you're spiritually rich, invest everything you have in what matters for eternity. Jesus said this, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Treasures on earth, that's your 401k, that's your IRA, that's your investment in the stock market, it's your house, it's your cars, it's the gold that you have in that box in the safe. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And he doesn't mean to say don't save and be wise, but think what it's for. You are rich, not because you have stuff. You're rich because you have treasures in heaven, so you may as well dump it all there and invest your life there. So, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the key. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And for the believers in Smyrna, if their treasure was in Christ, their heart was there too. They were rich. Brothers and sisters, listen to what the Spirit is saying. Poor, yet rich. Second paradox. Jews, yet, and this is how I phrase it, yet doing Satan's bidding. Jews, yet doing Satan's bidding. Now, descended from, from Abraham, rescued from slavery in Egypt, faithful to the Abrahamic covenant, even after the kingdom of Israel was divided, after King Solomon, holding fast to the law of God, even through exile in Babylon, having endured centuries of persecution, Jews had a profound sense of their unique place in the world as chosen and set apart by God. To be truly Jewish was to know that like Abraham, you would be counted righteous before God because you trusted in his promises. Regarding the Jews, the Apostle Paul recognized that they had, profoundly had a profoundly important role in the very revelation of the Messiah. Romans 9, this is what he wrote. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Romans 9, 4 and 5. And there are those yet who claim all of this, but they are not what they seem 
They are not what they claim to be. And for the believers in Smyrna, the Jews there had become their enemies. Despite all of that history, they're claiming to be Jews, but Jesus says, they're not. And what he says to them, Jesus knows about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. And here's what he says, but are a synagogue of Satan. You think about that. With their entire history, they say they're Jews, Jesus says they're not. What they are, in fact, is a synagogue of Satan. That's quite an indictment. What they had done is they had slandered. They had told lies about the believers there. And there's some evidence from history that the persecution of the believers that broke out there that they were experiencing was due to Jews inciting the Roman authorities against them, telling lies. Sometime after the destruction of the temple, so in, in, in the history of, of Israel, 586, the, the Judahites, the southern kingdom of Judah, they became Jews. They were called Jews. They're exiled to Babylon. There began this tradition of, of faithfully meeting together. So the faithful, the ones who held to the law, even after the exile, they would meet in homes and they would pray and study the Torah. And that was a good thing. And even after the temple was rebuilt, that tradition continued, the synagogue tradition, and, and in fact continues today. But when Jesus, in fulfillment of all of the, the biblical messianic promises and the expectation, when he showed up, he was rejected by the ones who should have received him. He came to his own, as John says, and his own people did not receive him. And so began this separation between Jesus and the Jewish and I would say Jewish religious establishment because among the disciples, they were Jews. Many Jews came to Christ in faith. But the establishment, the organized Jewishness, the religious tradition, there became this divide. And the Apostle Paul himself, once a part of that Jewish establishment, as a result of his reflecting back on it, called himself the worst of sinners for it. And he, he lamented, even to the point when he wrote Romans, he lamented the very delusion that they were under. And he longed, so desperately longed for his fellow Jews to recognize Jesus as the true Messiah. In his letter to the Romans, he zeroed in on the reason for the divide. And it was ultimately a matter of the heart. It was a matter of faith. He wrote this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So when Jesus says they claim to be Jews, but they're not, they're in fact the synagogue of Satan, it's because though they claimed this lineage from Abraham, they were missing something, something so essential. From the beginning, it was never a human bloodline that marked someone for inclusion in the eternal people of God. Inclusion was and is by faith, faith in all that God had promised. All of that culminating in the revelation of the Son of God coming to fulfill the law and the prophets. And that faith, it would only be present in those who had received Jesus. Because they were born, as John says, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. 
And so then to come back to Smyrna, to describe the Jews in Smyrna as this synagogue of Satan is pretty harsh. But here's the bottom line. If anyone rejects Christ, anyone, they are actually doing Satan's bidding. Satan is the adversary. He prowls, seeking to devour and destroy the work of God. And John said this even in his first epistle. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Deny Christ, you are the Antichrist. Christ. These Jews who, who presented themselves as God's elect in Smyrna, they were actively slandering the believers, and that led to much greater tribulation. Even today, even today, many Jews still reject Jesus as the Messiah. But you know what? Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's an even more insidious synagogue of Satan. There are assemblies today that claim to be churches. And they may have a history in the true faith. But when they gather, they focus their energies on, and I say so-called, social justice causes. Some of which of those causes are downright anti-biblical, anti-God. They gather to celebrate access to abortion, the killing of the unborn. They gather in order to celebrate the normalizing of same-sex unions. They gather to, to, to celebrate the destructive and enslaving transgender ideologies. These assemblies, and they exist today, not churches, we read about them in the news, not churches in the sense that, that they're anything that Jesus said he would build. They have long since denied that Jesus is truly the Son of God who came in the flesh. And even if they, these churches, would, would acknowledge the uniqueness of Jesus, to say that he was raised from the dead, they would just say hogwash. If they do that, understand they are the modern-day synagogue of Satan. And, and as believers in Jesus, we can have nothing to do with partnering with them in ministry. And, and I'm not saying this to be reactionary, but we have to understand the work of the evil one. To Smyrna, they were being slandered and, and, and ostracized and pillaged. And in this day and age, those so-called churches, they will call us whatever names and you see them in the news. The Apostle Paul described that this would happen. He described a general un, uh, godlessness, I should say, ungodliness or godlessness in the last days. People who are claiming to be Christian, but in fact, they're not. What they are is 2 Timothy 3, 5 through 7. What they are is lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. He instructed Timothy to avoid such people because they were always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth because they reject the word of God. Now we can do our best brothers and sisters to avoid them, not to join hands with them or to be partners in ministry with them. 
But it's entirely possible for them to make life difficult for us. And if that happens, Jesus knows. Jesus knows. It gets messy, doesn't it? The church that should be all on the same page and there are groups claiming to be Christian who take an outright anti-biblical position. And the company of the faithful seems to shrink and shrink and shrink. Brothers and sisters, we must not bend. Here's the comfort that we have if that does happen. And I think it's already happened. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 2 Corinthians 1.5. So part of that comfort is, is the knowledge that one day, one day we will rejoice with exceeding great joy when Jesus' glory will be on display. All creation. It says in Philippians chapter 2, when every knee bows, every tongue confesses, We've got to hold on to that day and look forward to that hope when his glory is revealed. Then all will be made right. Peter says this in his letter, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, if you don't share in his sufferings now, if you're not willing to take the reproach of Christ, you will not share in the glory when he is revealed. You'll find yourself on the wrong side. Jews, but doing Satan's bidding. Do you hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches? Well, here's the third paradox. Marked for death, but will live. It is very natural to fear suffering. It is very natural to fear death. And both of those realities, of course, if you know your Bible, they were introduced into creation because of sin. And now it's just an inescapable reality of living. To live is to suffer in some respect with the knowledge that we all eventually die. But when that suffering is, is amplified and when death is hastened by the malevolence of others, particularly because that person is identified with Christ, there is a unique kind of witness to it. A martyr, that's someone who dies for their faith in Christ. You know that word martyr? It's derived from that Greek word martus. And in the New Testament, it's often translated as witness. Witness. Well, Jesus tells the church at Smyrna, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Now, I don't know if we received a letter like that. You're going to be persecuted, and you're going to die. Be faithful. Do not fear. Now, I'm not sure the 10 days of tribulation is meant to be taken literally here. Some exegetes have suggested that 10 was a number of Roman emperors, right, from John's time through to Constantine, all of those emperors being hostile to Christians. 
In Revelation, it also seems that 10 is a symbolic of worldly powers that are opposed to the church. You can look at uh, Revelation 13.1. That's the beast with 10 horns. Or maybe it just simply represents a time that is neither short nor long, but will have to be endured. And I want to tell you, looking at the history of Smyrna, there certainly was a near-term fulfillment of this. You know, some years, uh, 60 years, I should say, after John wrote these things down, there was a persecution, I mentioned this, that broke out against the church in Smyrna. And perhaps, against, uh, influenced, I should say, by the Jewish leadership, they so hated the Christians, they slandered them, and, and this mob was rounding up Christians and throwing them into the arena with, uh, to be eaten by, mauled and killed by wild beasts, done for sport. Read about that in history. A historian, the late Ken Curtis, uh, Christian History Institute, maybe you've read some of this stuff. He wrote that that mob, they also wanted their leader, Polycarp. And he had been in hiding because of the persecution. They ultimately found him by torturing a couple of young boys to reveal his location. And he was brought into the arena and he was urged to recant his faith in Christ or himself to be thrown to the beasts. He refused. Here's what he said. This is beautiful. 86 years I have served him. He had never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? He had no fear. That proconsul who was, who was questioning him, he, he threatened him with execution by fire. And here's Polycarp's response. You threaten with fire that burns for an hour and is over. But the judgment on the ungodly is forever. Polycarp did not fear. He did not recant. And he was burned to death in the stake. That happened. Why? Well, as a, as a disciple of John, okay? He was a, a disciple of John, this Polycarp. He no doubt knew what the Lord had revealed in this very book. He knew the content of this and the rest of those letters. And he knew it was a test of his faith. And perhaps it aided him in his resolve not to renounce, not to recant. It was a brutal test of his faith but it's because his ultimate hope it's because of where it was his ultimate hope was in christ so let me ask you where is yours polycarp knew what was on the other side do you and i have that same confidence again jesus words to the church in verses 10 and 11 he says be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You want to live? You got to die. That's a paradox. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Everyone faces the first death, right? That's that consequence of sin that the Lord warned Adam about, right? He, he told him, about the fruit. For then the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Adam would die physically, which, which is to say that his own spirit would be separated from his body. But in an immediate sense, when he took that fruit, he died spiritually. He was separated from the life of God. That was represented in his banishment from the garden. He was separated from the, the tree of life. Now God would not remove that first death 
but by his grace he has remedied the second. And this reward for being faithful unto death, the reward for the one who conquers is that he will receive the crown of life and he will not be hurt by the second death. That's God's judgment against sin. That faithfulness, to stay faithful to the Lord, that will constantly be challenged. We need to know this. Now, it could be persecution. It's not so much in this part of the world, but there are believers today who face that. But the challenges that we face are often disappointments and tragedies in life. And some here know the pain of loss of a loved one who died too young or the tragedy of a suicide. Horrific things. Some know the hardship of living with incurable diseases. Depression, anxiety, profound disappointment, failure of a marriage, the estrangement of a child or a sibling. And in all of these circumstances, you may be tempted to turn away from the Lord is too hard. God, you can't be good. And blame him. That may be a temptation. Well, what does faithfulness look like? That faithfulness that's rewarded, faithfulness unto death. Again, it's this paradox. Now some, and maybe many of the Christians in Smyrna, would have to physically die to live. That's what faithfulness entails, though. To receive the crown of life, we have to die. This is what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny yourself. Self-denial, that's taking up, embracing the very means of your execution in this life. Now, it may not necessarily be a physical thing. It might be included. It was certainly for the Christians in Smyrna. But by faith, to kill the you that wants autonomy. Self-denial is killing the you that wants autonomy. To kill the you that thinks that you're the master of your own destiny, to kill the you that has rebelled against Almighty God, and by that same faith embrace a new life in union with Christ, surrendered wholly to him because you have been bought with his blood. Everything in this life, everything in the world, your own flesh, the wiles of the evil one, everything mitigates against that, and it is a trial. It's a daily test that we must and will endure and conquer by the power of the Spirit. James says this, similar words, such a repeating theme in the New Testament, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And know this, God's promises absolutely cannot be thwarted. And that is such good news. Beloved in Christ, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. If you want to live, 
you have to die. So if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ, it's an invitation to die. You have to give up your autonomy. You have to give up your rights. But it's a glorious exchange because you're not very good at it. And God wants your eternal best. And he's presented his son before you, crucified in your place, to take the full weight of your sin and to give back to you his perfect righteousness if you would just trust. Jesus is saying to the churches, I, I know you're suffering. You're poor, but you have eternal treasures. The glory of which, that's not even worth being compared. And you are being slandered. There are people who say they belong to me. They're, they're imposters, and I've heard what they're saying. And for some of you, it's going to get rough. Some of you will be imprisoned and die. Satan is certainly flailing, but he will be crushed. But hear this. If you remain faithful, you will live forever. And the very foundation of this promise is the paradox of Jesus himself because, verse 8, going back to the beginning of this section, he is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. This is Jesus' self-description. It, it harkens back to what John observed in, in, the, in the first part of, of the book in Revelation 1, 17 and 18. First and last. He is before all things. Jesus, without him, was not made anything that was made, John 1, 1. And he is last, which is to say, for from him and through him are all things. The whole point of everything is Jesus and his glory. He's the one who died and came to life. And that is the very anchor of our Christian hope. That, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the anchor of our hope. Christ the innocent. This is the, the great reversal. Christ the innocent died as a cursed man in the place of guilty sinners. We, the guilty, get to be counted righteous that's why we're rich. We have the righteousness of Christ on us. And because of Christ, that is why if you have been slandered and persecuted, you will be vindicated with Christ on the last days. And the lies of the opponents of Jesus will ultimately be revealed. And know this, and we have to look forward to this. Whatever you're facing right now, where you are, it's not likely a whole lot of persecution for your faith, but you are being tested each and every day. The temptations of the world around you to go their way, to just follow along, to just cave in. Every single day you're tempted. But if you endure, and you will endure if you have the power of the Spirit in you, if you truly in Christ, if you endure, you will have the crown of life. So hold on to that hope. That is what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And that is what the Spirit is saying to you. Let's pray. God, we are grateful. Even for the trials, even for the suffering, even for the difficulties. Lord, you have not caused us to endure what Smyrna has endured. 
But God, we know that you are the one ultimately that sustains us by your Holy Spirit. And may this, uh, your word, um, be just a reminder to be faithful even unto death. In those moments of, of weakness, shake us, Father, out of our complacency. Drive us back to your people where we're encouraged in your word. And keep us holding on, holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, knowing that you are the faithful one. We want the Lord Jesus himself to be glorified in and through our lives and in this church. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.